This is Laura looking for love, and last week I had provided a thought of the day, posing the question, what grounds us into our human experience? And although each of our answers to this question will vary, the way in which we first began to understand our relationship to humanity has everything to do with our roots, beginning with our ancestors, their traumas, fears, successes, joy, and grief. Their perceptions eventually become silent stories that are passed down from generation to generation until what we believe to be true is just a collection of experiences. So I had the opportunity this week to travel to the place where, on my dad's side of the family, the journey in America began. So before I go into that, I'll share briefly how I got there. Although my podcast is called Laura Looking for Love because love is an underlying theme to the empowerment I often speak of, the meaning behind the Bonsai Babes Empowerment Center, which I started last year, came from the characters I developed several years ago, which are now my logo. They are two little girls with bonsai tree hair, and the reason for the bonsai tree hair has to do with transformation. Just like the bonsai tree, which starts as just potential, it becomes what it is through creativity, love, intention, and care. And basically, that is all of us. We begin this journey just a ball of potential. And what we decide to do with ourselves is what we create. As women, I see us all as bonsai babes, on our path to our ultimate state of beauty and highest potential. So although they're the logo of the Empowerment Center, I also created some physical products over the years, including a kid's book for adults to honor our inner child and other creative expressions I call tools for transformation. And once in a while, I'll go to small community events where I offer these products and also provide crystal readings to people who have never had anyone speak to their spirit truths, the stuff beyond the surface. So this past weekend, I went to one of those events, and it happened to be about 20 minutes away from where my paternal grandmother was born and raised in a small little town called Sanger. And in my entire lifetime, I had never traveled to this place. I had heard my grandmother, who I referred to as Bachan, mention Sanger several times. I knew it was a farm town, I knew they were poor, and I knew my Bachan's sister had died in a house fire, and that tragic decisions had cost her her life. And that was about it. My Bachan would have been 99 years old yesterday, actually, as I record this podcast, but I never was able to hear the depths of her stories because, well... I was busy back then in my distracted life. So I went to this small town where the footprint of her family had been swept away. The only known families were those who had stuck around. My Bachan's family left after the war, but luckily there was a tiny little museum called the Sanger Depot Museum, and it happened to be open for three hours on the day that I was there. Only two days a week this museum is open, and not many people pass through it. Locals barely know it is there. But... They have a collection of yearbooks dating back 100 years. And in the Echo Yearbook of Sanger High, class of 1937, I was able to locate my Bachan. And to my surprise, she was the senior editor of the yearbook, she was in the Spanish club, she acted in at least one school play, and she was part of the scholarship committee. I was amazed at how active she was. And as I looked at her pictures, I told the docent who was with me, as I was the only one in the museum for the whole time it was open, that even when she was pictured in a group, she seemed removed, isolated, and sad. She never smiled. And he said, well, there really wasn't a lot to be thankful for back in those days. And I thought about that, and her story. She had these eyes that were just piercing, even when she wasn't smiling. I found her to be so photogenic with this magnetic, mysterious beauty. 
She always said that she was unattractive. I remember her saying that often. But there was something about her in those photos that said, I am more than what you see. I am layers and layers of stories and wisdom born from living in this specific time and place. And this is where I want to talk about judgment. Because to me, before I started digging into this history, my Bachan was just Bachan, who was sassy but kind and died way too young of cancer. But when I knew her, I knew her in that role. It's as if she was always that age, always a caregiver figure to me. I never thought to look beyond her role, and I never got to meet her father or mother, who were my great-grandparents, the first immigrants to America. But I formed judgments of them early on, through stories from my family. My great-grandmother didn't speak English, and my dad doesn't speak Japanese, so there was definitely a language and culture barrier between them that prevented them from getting close. And when I was younger, I remember him making comments that she was sort of mean and strict. And so that is the image I had of her, nothing more. To me, she was just a stereotype, a strict, somewhat cold grandmother figure. And as for my great-grandfather, the only story I ever heard about him was the day my Bachan's older sister died in the house fire. My Bachan was about four at the time, her younger brother just a baby, and her older sister about seven. So my great-grandmother had the baby in one arm, held my Bachan's hand in the other, and her oldest daughter, the seven-year-old, she told to grab onto her apron strings as she led them out of the burning house. And when they got out, she looked back, and her oldest daughter was gone. Well, my great-grandfather had found her, and he told her to wait there. He just needed to grab some valuables. But those precious few moments cost my Bachan's sister her life. And I remember as a child when I heard that story, thinking that my great-grandfather was a greedy and stupid man, choosing possessions over his daughter. But again, I only knew him from this one event, this one story. Well, as I began to uncover the story that begged to be uncovered through my Bachan's eyes and every photograph, I eventually returned home and revisited speaking with my dad and my aunt to ask them specific questions I never asked them before. I asked my dad how my great-grandmother was as a person, and he spoke of her as if she were a stranger, saying he didn't know he couldn't understand her. He did say that she used to annoy him when he was a teenager because she would talk to the screen in Japanese and he couldn't hear the program. And hearing the specifics as an adult, it was a far cry from the cold grandmother that I perceived from his description. And so I asked him about the specifics of some of the things she did that were quote-unquote mean. He said, well, one day when I was little, she caught me playing with matches, and to punish me, she tried to burn my finger. But I started crying like it hurt before the flame touched me, so I never really got burned. Again, it was a far cry from the uncaring grandmother perspective I had had as a child. I understood immediately the biggest reason behind her punishment. In his eyes as a child, this may have seemed mean, but as a mother who lost her oldest daughter in a fire, she did everything in her power to instill the worst fear in my dad so that he would never play with matches again and suffer the same fate, even if it meant he would hate her. Her goal wasn't for my dad to like her, it was to keep him alive. But he didn't know that. I realized that all these years of me seeing her as a stereotype, she, like all of us, had stories upon stories that affected every behavior and every decision she made. And just as I didn't dig deep into the stories of my Bachan, my dad did not dig deep into the stories of his. So his perception became mine because it was the only one I heard. And it was a skewed perception, a bit unfair, but one that was my reality for years. My aunt, who was closer to my great-grandmother and who could speak Japanese, said she remembered her crying every night, saying, if only I had looked back one more time. 
I wish I could go back in time and give her a hug, my great-grandmother who for forty years, to me, was made of steel. She was flesh and blood and human, and suffering just like the rest of us. So when I was talking to my aunt, she told me the full story of how they came to America. My great-grandfather was one of three boys, and back in those days, if one family had a boy, and a sibling or cousin's family did not, the family with the extra boys would often allow their second or third sons to be raised by the other family, or to at least take on the family's name. So both my great-grandfather's brothers were given to other family members to take on their name, and he was the only one with his father's last name. And because of this, he was the chosen one to come to America to try to make it. All of the family money and hope left with my great-grandfather as he embarked on his journey to America, and he lost it all. He wanted to start a farm, so he spent every last dime on this dream of a farm, but it turned out that he invested in bad land. He was swindled. And so with that one decision, my Bachon's family became migrant farm workers for years, and after the house fire that killed my Bachon's older sister, my great-grandfather struggled even more with finances and grief and regret and alcoholism, and just 11 years after her death, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. And when I heard his story of hope and tragedy, I realized that all these years seeing him as a greedy man was a perception that didn't fully allow for his humanity. Just like every human being, trauma will dictate behavior. And the trauma of losing everything he had when he invested in bad land was so painful that he couldn't bear a repeat of that in the fire. And I know that if he had been given a choice to have his daughter or money, he would have chosen his daughter. He didn't know that his decision would lead to her death. He wasn't greedy or money-hungry. He was a victim, and he was broken, operating in survival, poverty, and lack. I hadn't thought of my great-grandfather since I was a child hearing the stories of the fire, but now I have the deepest compassion for him and the suffering and guilt he endured. As I peel away the alcoholism, I can see his suffering, and as I peel away the suffering, I can see his guilt, and as I peel away the guilt, I can see the sadness, and as I peel away the sadness, I can see the trauma, and as I peel away the trauma, I can see the hope of a man who had a big dream. When my grandfather died, my Bachan's family became practically homeless. The Salvation Army had helped them, so they weren't living on the street. But eventually, one of my Bachan's classmates, who happened to be the nephew of the famous writer, William Saroyan, asked his father if they could stay with them, and they lived in the Saroyan family guest house until the war and camp relocation. I thought that was really amazing, that in this story of hardship and tragedy, humanity still peeked its little head out. So ultimately what started out as a small community event took me back to a time and place that planted the seeds for the way in which I first perceived my place in this world. And the big takeaway was a reminder to be compassionate for all of humanity. We don't always know what is behind an action, but there is always something behind it. And so before we judge, it's best to take a moment to acknowledge that there is always something more than one moment, one decision, one action, and one viewpoint. Thanks for tuning in. I will be back here next Friday. Be sure to subscribe to get all the updated episodes and have a good week.